Genesis 9, verse 18. Now, you might recall, we've looked at the flood, and the flood story tells us that man doesn't need a new start, he needs a new heart. Because if you don't change the heart of a person, sin will never, ever be dealt with. We are sinners. Even as Christians with new hearts, we're still sinners. What the new heart does, God's Spirit, we called it last week, regenerating our hearts, makes us in such a way that we have the ability to choose to submit to the Holy Spirit. We're no longer bondaged and imprisoned to the desires of our flesh to sin. And because just simply wiping off sin from the world with water doesn't actually change a man's heart. It simply gives him a new start. We see that man goes right back to his sinning ways. And everything is going to eventually culminate to the Tower of Babel, which is uh, one of the ultimate sins we'll see next time. And this is where we are. Noah, in this section, begins to sin. And if his sin is bad, which it is, his son's sin is worse. And his grandson's sin is going to be even worse. We'll see how all that unfolds. Just sin always escalates. And when I go down with my hand, escalating usually goes up, but I'm going down because that's what sin does. It increases in intensity but brings us further down into depravity. So we'll see the human race constantly going down, down, down. So Genesis 9 verse 18 says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, Ham was the father of Canaan. Just a little foreshadow there. And the 19 says, These were the three sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So these three sons come off the ark. It's a new world, and they're going to populate the whole world. Now, Ham is the son that went... Let me give you guys a map here. Mediterranean Sea is in the middle. Mediterranean Sea. On this side, you have the Middle East, Israel, and Saudi Arabia out that way. Up top, you have Turkey and Europe going this way, right? Turkey and down to Europe. And then on the bottom, you've got Egypt down to Africa. So, Mediterranean Sea is the middle. Now, Ham went south and started all the people groups in Egypt and in Africa. Yeah. Yeah, that's me. Sight, distance thing. But you can look at it. It might help. <laughs> all of you are all maps in the back. Um, yeah, so Egypt, Africa down the south. That's where Ham and his people went. Shem took his people over to the Saudi Arabia area, eventually, they're the Israelites, they're going to be the Shem people. They eventually took Canaan and Israel, took that whole area. And then up north went Japheth, and he became more of the Caucasian type, if you would. Uh, most of us here are Japhites, I guess. And they went and spread out all the way into Europe. So that's basically the three people groups and where they all went and how they all started. So, for a messianic interest, Shem is our man. He's the guy who's going to eventually bring the Messiah. Not Ham, not Japheth. It's going to be Shem, the Semitic people. See how Semitic goes with Shem? That's the Jewish people. 
And so Ham is pointed out as the father of Canaan. This will be important for a specific reason. Um, you'll see in just a second. Now, when I say that Shem over here in the whole Saudi Arabia area, they eventually took Canaan, that strip of land which is presently Israel, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. But before they did, Ham, who's down in Egypt and Africa, also had that little strip called Canaan. So Ham's descendants, his son, Canaan, is his name, that's why the strip of land called Canaan, his son inhabited that area, which Israel would eventually take. So you can see the author has the whole point is showing Israel's birth and the whole mission of Israel, bringing the Messiah in the world, by showing us Canaan. It's the only grandson that he highlights here. So now verse 20, the story begins. <laughs> Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So there's, Abraham, or there's Noah, naked in his tent, totally drunk, totally passed out, totally unconscious, and apparently because he was all hot from drinking, probably stripped off his robe, totally in an unaltered, or an altered mind, state of mind, strips off the robe, lays down on the couch, passed out, and doesn't remember anything <laughs> when he wakes up. Well, there he is. And Ham, verse 22, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So Ham, just walking along, stumped, maybe the tent door is flapping open in the breeze, and Ham's walking along, and I saw some white in there. <laughs> what was that? And he looks in, and my goodness, Dad is totally butt naked, passed out in his tent. Now that's not the sin of Ham. Ham looks in there. Okay, my dad sinned. He passed out. He's drunk. Total accidental. You guys know how it sometimes is. Your eyes just, you know, you, something strikes your mind and you have to look. You don't even think about, should I look or not? You just look and then you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't look. That's probably what Ham did. Like, whoa. And he looks. Um, <laughs> you got, when I, I once went to um, my friend is in a hockey tournament and Brittany and I went to go watch him play in the hockey tournament. And after the game, we were walking down the bleachers. And right to the left, we're walking down the steps. And to the left is the hockey team dressing room. And the door's open. Apparently, these guys had no problem with the door being open. And um, we're walking out talking. And I look over and I notice there's a guy butt naked just stripping down into his, you know, out of his gear. And... Um, so I, I just calmly say, uh, don't look to your left, Brittany, as we're walking in. What does she do? Looks to her left. <laughs> Why is that? I mean, say, don't look, we look. But that's what she did, and it's like, oh, my gosh. And you're like all mad at me for even saying anything. I would never have looked if you didn't say anything. I'm like, no, you probably would have noticed. But anyways, that's like, you probably am. You know, he's walking by. And, <laughs> What's that? And he looks. Now, that's fine and all, because you know, even like Brittany, she didn't mean to look at a naked guy, even though I told her not to. It's just, your mind's like, something's there. Look. Ham looks. Nothing wrong with that. But Ham's heart began to delight in seeing the nakedness of his father. Not that he was a pervert. There's nothing that indicates that. But it was that his dad, the priest and leader of the entire household, was, um, well, 
at this time could have consisted of many servants because we don't know how long after the flood this is. It could have been anywhere up to 300 years after the flood. Noah could have had a bunch of sons and daughters and servants and he's the priest. He's like the king of his whole family. And Ham looks and has this delight in my dad looks stupid. And if Ham has any wicked intentions of being the family leader, he's thinking, I'm going to make dad look real bad here. So, he gets out his iPhone, snaps a few pictures, and heads on out of the tent and tells his brothers in verse 23, or 23, he thought, that he went and told his two brothers outside. That's where the sin happens. He sees it, fine, incidental. But he goes outside and then starts to tell everyone what he sees. And likely not just a, that's naked, don't go in there, just leave him alone. More like a, guys, check this out. Look what I just got on my iPhone, you know, shows them the pictures. and You see this? Here's a close-up. He's totally passed out, dude. He is wasted. And they're like, you know, he's all giggling, like, hey, look at this. And perhaps maybe his son, Canaan, Ham's son, Canaan, comes up and like, let me see, whoa, and starts texting it to everyone else, and who knows what's going on. And it's just, it's getting out of hand. But Japheth and Shem aren't necessarily laughing. They say, oh, this is bad. Dad looks like an idiot. So they grab a cloak in verse 23. Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, huge emphasis there on them not seeing it. It says they walked in backwards, um, their faces were turned backward, and they did not see. So, three different ways it tells us they wanted no part in the shame of their father. Pure motive of covering it up. Just, Dad made a mistake, let's let this not get out of hand, just... just Keep his respect and his dignity in order. Cover it up. And they went out and never saw anything. So it's not like they were like, Oh, him, I want to see this in person too. And they go in there, oh, look at this. Oh, yeah, it was covered up. And, you know, cover up the evidence and walk out. No, they wanted no part of this. Well, Noah awoke from his wine, his drunkenness, and knew what his youngest son had done to him. How did he know? Maybe he remembered passing out naked and thought, there's something on me. I didn't do that. Who was in here? And started asking around, or rumor went around, or Noah went on Facebook and saw his images posted and said, who did this? Somehow, he finds out what Ham did to him. And he's livid. And he starts cursing. And we'll get into that in just a second. But the first sin we see is Noah's drunkenness, which leads to his nakedness. The second sin we see is Ham's gossip. Remember, the sin isn't in the, in, oh, the, the sin is not in what Ham saw; it's in what Ham said. And he goes to his brothers and starts to share. This is totally what we do to this day, and we think in much more innocent tones, but we go around and we see someone that has a weakness, or we hear about some sort of a sin, or something stupid they did, and it's our sinful nature to want to go 
whisper about it to other people or to go spread it abroad for their infamy and to defame them. And it, it's this sin to talk about it. It's called gossip. In Proverbs 26, 22, Solomon writes and says that the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. The words of a whisperer, like Ham, this is so funny, you got to see Dad like this, are like little delicious morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. Proverbs 26-22. Gossip. It's just like that. We go around and we want to hear it. Oh, what is that? What, what does Ham have to say? But Japheth and Shem heard it, but they said, we're not spreading this abroad, we're not going to feed Ham's little thing, we're going to put an end to this, and they cover the nakedness. But it's our sin, not only to gossip, but to listen to gossip, to egg those gossipers on, to let them keep talking about it, to give them reason to keep speaking. And can you imagine if um, Shem and Japheth said, oh my gosh, this is great, we're going to go get a peek and we're going to spread it abroad too. This whole thing's going to go out of hand and Noah is going to have no control of the family and anarchy is going to ensue and who knows what's going to happen to mankind then. But they don't listen to the gossip. They put a stop to it. When it comes to them and say, this needs to end, we're covering up his weakness. We're covering up his shame. The words of a whisper are like delicious morsels. What's a morsel, you might be thinking? <laughs> chocolate chips are so tiny. That's a morsel, the chocolate chip. In fact, I think it's the Nestle brand, their big bag of chocolate chips actually says on it, chocolate morsels. I was like, oh, that's perfect. All those little chips are little morsels. And the words of gossip are like tasty little morsels. So you listen to ham and you say, it's like having one little chocolate chip. Ooh. Now, when my dad, this is the custom of my dad after dinner to open up a bag of chocolate morsels, chocolate chips, and he just loves to take handfuls and eat chocolate. He loves chocolate. Just take the handfuls and eat the chocolate. And, you know, you see it there and you can't just ignore it. It's chocolate. So, you know, I don't really want any. I'm going to have something else or I don't know. Some, you know, pie for dessert. Hold off on the chocolate. But we take just one. It's there. We're all talking. All right, got to have one. Yeah, right. You never have one chocolate chip. It's totally impossible. It's totally inadequate. You have one. You have another. You're stupid if you can just grab one in the first place. Just grab a handful. Chocolate. And that's what you do. When you hear a morsel, when you eat a morsel, you want more. When you hear a morsel, when you hear that little word of gossip, you can't stop at one and be done. You're always going to want more. Like, oh, really? Tell me more. I want to know more about this. I want to go investigate it now. Or tell me the full story. Hey, did you hear that? Brad and Bailey broke up. Brad says something stupid. Tell me more. Brad cussed at her. Oh my gosh, does Brad do that all the time? Brad's got a dirty mouth. You don't know that church because he holds it down. But yeah, he watches some gross movies and he totally, that's where he gets it all. And he just swears and curses and oh my gosh. Oh, it goes more. 
it goes more. Bailey slapped him after that. I thought Bailey was so nice. Oh no, Bailey's not nice at all. Bailey's got a dark side. Bailey one time did this at this party. You know, it just goes on. You want more. The delicious morsels, like, oh, more. But, Shem and Japheth. Squash it. No morsels for us. We're going to go take care of this problem. Cover Dad's weakness. And so they put the blanket on Dad, thus fulfilling Proverbs 15, 17, verse 9. It says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But whoever repeats a matter separates close friends. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But you go and repeat the matter, jabber, talk about it. You separate close friends. Very practical advice there from Solomon. He's saying, look, when you see someone's weakness, Noah's nakedness, go and cover that. That's what love does. Love covers their sin, their weakness. It doesn't go and repeat the matter. Stephen has this weakness. So I'm going to tell Jaden, I'm going to tell Bree, I'm going to tell Tim, Tim probably knows. I'm going to tell John and tell everybody that's separating friendships, that's sin, and that's gossip. And before you know it, it's going to spread because no one can take this one morsel. It's going to go out of hand. But to seek love, as Shem and Japheth did, is to cover the offense. It's to hear the sin and to say, it's not going out of this conversation. I'm, I'm putting an end to it. We're going to cover it. We're not going to publicize the sin. We're going to cover the nakedness. That's what they do. So no one's going to hear about dad's nakedness. We're stopping it here. We're not going to spread it. We're going to cover it. The perfect act of love. And guys, when you hear, see, know of weaknesses in others or sin or stupidity, it's even stupider (laughs) to go and publicize it like Ham. It's rather to seek love and to cover that. Say, I'm... I'm just going to overlook this. I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not going to let it change the way I see my brother or my sister. So that's how we should deal with each other's sin, is to seek love and to take that blanket, if you will, and just cover their nakedness. We need to be here for each other. We struggle with things. And if someone admits it, we don't go and blow the cover. We, we, we're there to cover them, to help them, to love them. And it's so sad when Christians want to publicize our failures and it's like come on that's the way of the world we're supposed to have love for one another and so Ham is one deviled Ham in his sin see haha deviled Ham alright well I knew I shouldn't have done it so Noah finds out stupid Ham sinning Ham you're cursed (laughs) so here comes the curse in verse 25. Noah said, Curse should be Canaan. <laughs> Wait a minute. Why is he cursing Canaan instead of Ham? Canaan is Ham's son. We find that out in chapter 10. But Canaan isn't even Ham's first son. He's his fourth son. So Noah here, doesn't curse Ham, doesn't curse his first, second, or third son, he curses his fourth son. Why? I don't know. But it is probable that Noah cursed Ham's entire family. Although it doesn't say it, it is conceivable that Noah cursed them all. 
the reason we only see Canaan is because the author only cares about Canaan. When Moses is writing this book, he doesn't really care about Ham's other sons and what Noah did to them. Why is he writing this whole book of Genesis and the whole Pentateuch as a whole? That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Why is he writing all this? He's writing it for Israel. When did he write it to Israel? Right before they go into the promised land to take the land. He's writing it to show them, obey God, you'll succeed. Disobey God, you won't succeed. So therefore, obey God, go into the land of Canaan and take it. So Moses' only care in this story is to show why Canaan ought to be a land possessed by Israel. Because Canaan is part of the curse of Ham. Now, the curse goes on like this. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He said also, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and let Canaan be Shem's servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant also. So after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Sad that he had to die with this last story on his name, but the way it is, because he drunk. <laughs> so, he curses Ham. Why? Just because he gossips? Seems kind of severe, Noah. Ham does this little thing, and then, Curse, 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 all the way down to your grandson's generation, that whole nation, Canaan. Wow. Well, it could be that this isn't the cause of the curse, more of the occasion of the curse. Let me explain. Um, it's not that Ham was just this good little boy and then suddenly sinned and now, bam, this big curse. That would be the cause of it. He did this, therefore he's cursed. It's more likely that this is the occasion for the curse. He's been a bad little boy, and now this is the culmination of his badness, so this sin act brings the curse that he's deserved all along upon him. That's probably how it is. Ham is just, we see a small little snippet of how he's been living, this gross, perverted, um, perverted sense he's a sinner, just totally anti-good guy, and he seeks to spite his father by gossiping and show contempt against him and um, defame him and total disrespect for his father. And therefore, because Ham lives this life, Noah curses the whole family, I'm proposing, and Moses is now writing to show us specifically Canaan. Now, this is great. This is what I begin to love. Is we're uniting the Bible yet again. You guys recall in Genesis 3 verse 15, we looked at the Bible's war initiated. Adam and Eve just fell, they sinned, and Satan's being punished. So they're all saying for God, God finds out about the sin, he's punishing, bringing a curse upon Adam, Eve, and now he curses the serpent, Satan. And he says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and her offspring shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise the offspring's heel. 
So there's going to be war between the woman and her offspring and the serpent and his offspring. And we've looked at, in the past, who these people are. The woman's offspring is all those who are in Christ. Eventually Christ is the seed of the woman, Paul says. And all the Christians that have faith in Jesus are the offspring of the woman. And those that follow the ways of Satan, lying and murdering, are the seed, the offspring of the serpent. And God says that there will always be a war between the two. And once that's established, the next chapter we see Cain, offspring of the serpent, Abel, offspring of the woman. And what happens? They love each other. No, there's war. Offspring of the serpent kills the offspring of the woman. And there's always this tension. It's been this way through the whole church. Catholic church, religion saved by works, against Protestants um, saved by faith alone, God's grace, real relationship with Jesus. Not that there aren't Catholics that are saved, I'm just generalizing here. And we've seen in history, the Catholic church does what to Protestants? Kills them. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a whole book of the Catholic Church killing Christians. It's the whole conflict throughout the whole Bible. And what happens here in this curse, in Genesis 11, is that Moses is showing a new aspect of this war between both seeds. Israel is the seed of the woman. Canaan is the seed of the serpent. And they're going to have conflict. Read Joshua. Israel goes in war against Canaan. And Israel doesn't completely kill Canaan, so Canaan begins to show murder against Israel. And the two go back and forth through the entire Old Testament. The battle continues. It wages on. This is why Moses shows us Canaan is cursed. But, eventually... This prophecy is fulfilled that Canaan's going to serve Shem because Shem, this is Israel, eventually does put Canaan to labor um, when it's initially, at least under Joshua. They totally dominate them for a time and we see a partial fulfillment of this prophecy as Canaan becomes their servant. So we see all of this beginning to develop and Moses is going, I think what he's writing this for is to show them, guys, when you go into the land of Canaan, they're every bit worthy of you to put to the slaughter. God's telling you to, and look, in the past, they're cursed. The nation of Canaan walked in the ways of Ham, in just total sin, total godlessness. Let's look at this further. Let's go to, uh, you can, go to Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, verse 9. Now, Moses is telling them, when they go into Canaan, you're to slaughter them because they're, they're bad. and They're going to hurt you. It says there in verse 6, None of you shall approach any one of his relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. 
It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister. It goes on and on and on. So that when you read from verses 6 all the way through verse 20, the word nakedness occurs 22 times in less than 20 verses. And the reason he's telling them not to do these things when they go into Canaan is because the Canaanites do these things. They uncover the nakedness of their father, their mother, other people's wives, their sisters, animals even, um, other men, men with men, women with women. They cover the nakedness of everybody. The Canaanites were obsessed, obviously, with nakedness. They just love sex and nakedness. And, and God's telling them, don't do that. It's so strange that Ham goes in and sees the nakedness, the uncovered nakedness of Noah. And Ham is cursed, and Canaan is cursed. And the Canaanites go on to live obsessed with nakedness. Not to have no part with it. <laughs> you guys are to take them out. So that's the nakedness. That's why Canaan has a special highlight curse. Because his descendants walk just like Ham. Just total sinners. Total godless. Seed of the serpent. Take them out. So, that's that. I want to... I hope that makes sense. Um, I hope that's somewhat illuminating to where the rest of the Pentateuch goes. I want to now just finish with looking at Noah. His drunkenness. You know, Ham isn't the only sinner here. Drinking alcohol to the excess of drunkenness is a sin. And I've seen so closely, firsthand now, with it being in my family, what drunkenness and excessive alcohol does to a person's life. It's not healthy. You can become so addicted to it. You can become what they call an alcoholic. I'm in no way saying Noah was an alcoholic, but I'm just showing, because he became drunk, that we need to be aware of drunkenness and what it can lead to. How drunkenness, it's a mockery. Noah was completely humiliated and mocked in his drunken stupor. He lay there uncovered, the garments totally off of him, exposed. And yes, drunkenness has this way of making people want to get naked, but more than just physical nakedness, drunkenness will uncover everything about you. You'll begin to say things that you didn't mean to say. And thus you're exposed. You're open. You're naked. And so people see what you really think. Oops, I didn't mean to say that. I'm sorry, I was drunk. Well, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whether drunk or not, all the drunkenness did was take off the guard that we usually use before we say things. The guard's gone. So you just say things without you thinking. Um, I talked to a woman who is engaged and her fiancé one night said some stupid things to her that really hurt her. And she held it against him for a while. And he's like, why are you so mad at me? What did I ever do to you? And she goes, you don't remember saying all those things about me and to me? You, when? You, you said it the other night. And he says, nah, 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 nah. babe, I don't remember this at all. I didn't mean that. I was drunk that night. I'm sorry. And she told me. I forgave him after that. When I found out he was drunk, it was totally okay. I knew he didn't mean it. And I just looked at her and like, I hope your marriage works out when you get married. Because, man, if, if you can look at a man and say, 
you said all that stuff just because you're drunk and it's okay? Okay, fine. And think that it's just good with... I, look, just because you're drunk is an excuse to be a punk. Like, oh, I was drunk and I said it. That doesn't matter. Sorry, it didn't really happen. As if it was a magic eraser. I, you know, it doesn't care how drunk someone is. If they start to tell me things, I'm going to think, now I know what you really think about me. That's who you are without the guard, without the fakeness. I'm just, I just hurt first to think like, oh, it's just okay, he's drunk. What, what is she going to think next time he hits her when he's drunk? He, he was just drunk, he didn't mean it. It's funny how in the law, if I am drunk and I shoot him, the law's not going to look at me and say, oh, he was drunk. He couldn't help it. No murder charges. That's not how we do things. So being drunk is no excuse to be a punk. Just say what we want, do what we want. It totally uncovers us, who we really are. Our wicked selves just comes out. No reserve. And that's what it does. It uncovers us in what we say and do, but it also uncovers us in a physical way. Somehow, when people start drinking, they stop thinking, and the clothes start flying, coming off. And, and guys, it's just the caution to not put yourself in that situation where wine or beer or vodka or whatever is going to put you in jeopardy to where the clothes are going to start coming off and you're going to end up with someone that you never even intended to be with. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says that wine is a mocker. That's what it does. It puts us in a place where people say, ha ha, what an idiot he is. Habakkuk 2 verse 15 actually talks about how there's this tendency for drunkenness to bring about nakedness. God says, Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink, so, and, and you pour out your wrath, and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Woe to the man who makes someone else get heavily intoxicated to gaze upon their nakedness. And it's totally a ploy. People will encourage you to um, that have the intention of, I want to sleep with this person. They just encourage you to drink a little more so you become easy. Your guard let down and you're an easy victim. So girls especially, you've got to guard yourself against those situations. Especially, um, you know, some of you are going to go into college and um, hopefully Casey's not part of the scene. Binge drinking and all, but it's just totally, totally unhealthy and it leads us into um, doing stupid things. Um, I just did a little bit of research how alcohol can lead to nakedness because it does four things. At first, it impairs our communication. You begin to interpret what people say totally differently than what they're actually intending. You, you, you just, oh, you think every, okay, when you're drunk, according to studies, I've never been there, but um, when, when someone says hello, Usually we think they just mean hello. But when you're drunk, when they say hello, you hear it as hello. Like, you want to do something? It just starts to break our communication down. We take things differently. We, we don't even know how to speak clearly. It's our whole, it's, everything's vague and it's taken in a different light. And secondly, drunkenness affects our emotions. We become emotionally heightened. 
so that every little thing can easily irritate us and we become angry easily and we become more aggressive. It's not very hard for us to make aggressive conclusions and to say, this time I'm guilty. And it makes men sometimes more aggressive with women to not use smart reservation, but to just let their animal nature start to come out. Number three, drunkenness impairs our judgment so that you're not wise in the situations you are. Um, that's why you see people get in cars with drunk drivers. They're not thinking. They're drunk. They just go along with the flow. They become sheep. They just follow everyone. All right, whatever. Hey, you should uh, j- uh, jump out of the window. Let's see who can jump out the highest window. Yeah, he did the second three. I'm going to do the third. Oh, I'm going to do the fourth. And someone dies eventually. <laughs> Stupid stuff happens. It impairs the judgment. It, it impairs your um, ability to resist because your judgment is so skewed. You're not thinking, this guy is touching me. I should resist. It's just, oh, okay, that's what's happening. Just go with the flow. It totally encourages you to do that. Number four, drunkenness increases our vulnerability to where, you know, you don't, you're not resisting anymore and you're just totally open and vulnerable and you never know what can happen. You can pass out and when you pass out, no one, God knows what's going to happen to you at these drunken parties when a woman's laying there drunk, passed out. You know, I, I've heard the stories. You don't even know how many times someone did it to you. You just don't even remember. You had no body control. So dangerous. And, and I think it's significant that the Bible's first mention of drunkenness is in such a magnificent context of this curse of Canaan and all of this stuff just to show, bam, not even going to be tolerated. <laughs> drunkenness is a sin. Period. Uh, Part of the danger, too, is you may not even intend to get drunk at a party if there's any alcohol there. Um, you might just be socially drinking or just drinking whatever. Uh, but there's actually what's called the date rape drug. And that's a colorless, odorless drug pill that you can pop into someone's drink. And what it does, and when you drink, you have no idea it's in there. It's colorless, it's odorless. You would never know it's in there. You drink your drink, and what it does to your body is it totally takes control of your muscles so you've got no strength. You're just, you become so, like... Um, I don't know where I'm trying to find. It's out of control of your body, and you actually blank out, and you lose all, you can blank out at times, you lose all memory of what's happening that night, and it puts you in this state of, like, a dream-like feel. You feel like you're in a dream the whole time. So, when someone, that happens to someone, they drink the date rape drug, that's why they call it the date rape drug, it's because it's easy to rape somebody when they're in that situation. They just, you know, control. They go with everything. Oh, it's a dream. And they wake up and they don't remember who did it. That's why it's a common ploy. Because you can get away with it. And they, the girl, the guy, whatever, will not even remember who did what to them. They can only suspect that something might have happened because they don't remember. They're like, I think something bad happened. Scary stuff. Now, with that said, um, I'm looking at most of you and from what I know from your personal life, I'm just preaching to the choir and sorry for that. Um, usually, we don't always have people I'm preaching the choir to, but hopefully, um, I am preaching the choir to you guys. Um, usually, our bigger crowd, you never know who you have in here, so I was hoping, but I don't know. Um, at least remember that when you guys get to college, in college, whatever stage you are in life. But I want to leave us with this attitude towards alcohol, because it's easy in the church, and Unfortunately, I think it's a weakness to Calvary Chapel is they're notorious for being very legalistic about alcohol. 
Um, many times, the standard towards pastors that they shouldn't drink, and I'm fine with that. That pastor should have no alcohol. I'm totally cool with that standard for pastors. Unfortunately, the standard trickles down, and they expect that every single person who associates with the church is not allowed to drink at all. The same woman who I had this conversation with about a drunk fiancé, she once asked me if I was open to the idea of alcohol. You know, oh, you're a Christian. She knows it. She would often, you know, get skeptical of me and stuff. And so, uh, are Christians allowed to drink? Yeah. She was totally blown away. Apparently the tradition she's used to is totally no drinking at all. No alcohol. Evil. Bad. Don't even touch it. You own something that's bad. You can't even put a little... Anyways. Um, I was like, yeah, I mean, uh, you know what? If, yeah, I know some friends that drink. I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm not going to... Con- they're not sinning because they like to drink a glass of wine with their dinner. The Bible nowhere says that alcohol consumption is a sin. It's the abuse of it that's the sin. It's the drunkenness. In fact, Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15, um, let me read this to you. This is the psalmist's attitude towards wine. He's saying that, God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. God, you've provided wine to gladden the heart of man. The Bible speaks of wine in positive tones. It's for our enjoyment. But the abuse of it... So, I want to leave us with this attitude towards alcohol that you guys don't have to look at alcohol as the devil. I think this perspective of pounding in the kids that it's bad to take a single sip of alcohol and you're not allowed to touch it, bad, bad, creates in us this tendency to, I'm free, I'm going to drink, and we have no control. How much better if we treat, when you guys become parents, <laughs> if we teach our kids that alcohol can be something that can be enjoyed in its appropriate boundaries, and we teach them within the home how to use it properly, lest they go to college and learn how to use it there. That's a bad thing there. I don't want my kid to learn about it there. I would rather be the one to teach them and to let them know this is a good thing in its context, but when you take it out of context, it is awful. Now, because it's for our enjoyment, I'm not saying that you should drink under all circumstances. If you are at a secular scene and there's social drinking, I'm not talking about the drunken scene, you shouldn't be there at all. But just a social drinking scene, should a Christian drink there? You have the liberty. I would just gauge what does the scene look like. Because the minute you start to drink with them, you're associating yourself with the scene. So you would ask yourself, do I want to be associated with this or do I want to be different and refuse to take the drink with them? It's just wisdom to use there. Um, another situation would be um, when you're with a recovering alcoholic or an alcoholic or someone that you know occasionally gets drunk and struggles with wine or alcohol, that would be a good time to put your liberty aside and say, I don't need a drink. I don't want to lead this person into a bad situation. I don't want to be the cause. If somebody, by finding out that you use liberty to drink, is stumbled by that, then maybe you shouldn't drink at all. 
That's why Calvary Chapel takes the standard of pastors shouldn't drink at all because it's like the standard for some struggling person says, but my pastor drinks so I can drink and then they continue to struggle. Well, that's a bad thing. Maybe the pastor should just take a stronger stance and, you know, just not encourage struggling people but allow the liberty to those that can handle it. So, that's my rant and rave on alcohol. It's not mentioned too often in the Bible so I thought I would take the opportunity tonight to enlighten us on perhaps a miscued attitude towards it. Don't be alcohol haters. Just use it properly. Same thing with every desire. Sex in its context is good. Bad out of it. All of the desires you go down the line. Eating, to a degree. Gluttony, not good. So, let's pray. Father, it's our gratitude to you for showing us how to live. And God, I, I pray for those who struggle with alcohol Lord, save them. Save them from that bondage as it can so desperately be. Um, protect my students here, God, from becoming alcoholics. And Lord, if, if they choose to use that liberty, give them the wisdom to do so correctly. And if they don't want to, Lord, bless them in that as well. In Jesus' name, amen.